welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. One of the bigger trends in recent years in the tech space has been the rise of delivery startups like Instacart and Postmates and the like. But in a way, this is really the resurrection of an idea, because you may remember there were several famous 90s delivery startups like Webvan, Peapod, and Cosmo.com. So I thought it would be interesting to speak with someone who founded a delivery startup back in the 90s. And so in this episode, we're going to talk to Tim DeMello, who was the founder of Streamline, a delivery startup which actually predated the dot-com era. We talked to Tim about the economics of the home delivery business, and we find out what he thinks the prospects are for the current crop of delivery companies. Please enjoy this conversation with Tim DeMello. Tim DeMello, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Sure, my pleasure. So we like to get uh, a little bit of background uh, at the beginning. You started out actually in finance as, as a stockbroker on Wall Street, right? That's correct. Yeah, I worked for a firm by the name of Kidder Peabody. I graduated from Babson College uh, as an undergrad in 1981 and spent about six years as a stockbroker. Mm-hmm. Um, what what made you what made you leave Wall Street? Um, I left uh, because I really wanted to do startups. So I ended up having um, a few ideas for different startups that I wanted to do. And because I went to Babson, I was always interested in the world of entrepreneurship. So that was sort of really got me got me thinking about different things I wanted to do. So uh, you start a, a company called Replica Corporation, and is did that do uh, interactive gaming and things like that? Yeah, that was some of the original fantasy games uh, business. Uh, I did uh, investment challenge games um, and uh, fantasy sports games back in the days where people would actually call us on an 800 phone and trade through this sort of big bank of agents I had on a local area network. Uh, and I had USA Today as a as a partner and AT&T as a sponsor. So that's that's going back to, uh, that was 1987 till 1992. Mm-hmm. And that back in the day when they called it rotisserie, not fantasy, I guess, right? That's correct. Yeah, it just started to be called fantasy, and we produced the first national fantasy game with a license from the um, NFL Players Association, which is really interesting. And um, that's another conversation, but yeah. Hmm. Um, you leave uh, Replica in around 1993, is that right? That's correct. So um, tell me about how the idea of what became Streamline uh, first came about. Sure. I just felt that um, people were sort of time-starved and that people would be willing to uh, place a sort of an online order and get home delivery of consumer goods. So I started to think a lot about that um, and really try to think about how I could sort of aggregate goods in through one single delivery that were sort of consumable, renewable, and disposable, right? So that was that was groceries, that was things like dry cleaning, uh, bottled water, so all of these different services. So we set up a uh, 100,000 square foot uh, warehouse facilities in the suburban areas and metro areas in the U.S. and started our business. Well, you you didn't have any experience previously in, in things like groceries or, or retail even. So what, what made you think that this was an idea that, that you could pull off? 
Yes. I mean, I, I think most entrepreneurs look at the demand side of things, uh, not the supply side. Um, that's the second part of it. Um, so what I, what I saw was uh, just really time-starved consumers. We, we sort of dubbed something busy suburban families, BSF. So we were mainly in the suburban markets where people just didn't have the time to sort of run out and do these things. So the whole idea was to distribute them directly to them. So we literally started a test uh, with six households, and uh, we really tried to figure out how we could create a solution that would work for them and see what kind of frequency we would get in ordering. Our model was we delivered to your house every Thursday or every Friday. Everybody had a date, and all they needed to do was get the order in by midnight the night before. It would make that, that distribution to their home. Now, describe for me exactly how it works. So Streamline, if, if I was a... a uh, a home that wanted to join Streamline, you would send an agent first to to our house and, and take stock of you know what was in the fridge and the cupboards and things like that. Yeah, so we would send somebody out with a barcode scanner because most about seventy percent of everything people order is just a rebuy. So we would have essentially a, a sort of a list for you just from that scan, and then we would also set up a keypad on the outside of your garage door. Um, and we would actually put a deliver a refrigeration unit into your garage. So now we were all set up to basically send out to you um, all of the different things that you needed at any point in time. So, uh, so then the, the refrigerator is in my um, is in my garage or my basement or whatever. And so then, uh, do you automate like the the things that I would buy every week, or is do I call in an order? How does that work? So the way you could order, and remembering this is back in uh, the mid-90s, right, mm -hmm. um, you could order via fax, you could order via calling in, in an order, and then the Internet was just coming online at that time, so we started moving everything onto the Internet. And it cost uh, $30 a month. Were there any, was there any markup or any additional fees on top of that? No, it's $30 a month to subscribe to the service, which covered all of your delivery, it covered the unit in your home and all of that. Um, and then you would just, you know, place your order. Let's say we were delivering to you every Friday, Thursday by midnight, you'd place your order. So, you know, we were doing, oh, our average orders were anywhere from 100 to $175 a week. Um, and we were really we were really serving the suburban household. So, because um, what we found was that when there was one at least one child in the home, it created more of a routine, um, and sort of people were eating out less less. And so we were basically able to support them and handle all of this at that time. Right. I, I had read that um, your your target customer was what you called a, a BSF, a, a busy right. suburban family, and so. Are, is is that generally the idea to to create a service where you could eliminate the you know the, the weekly grocery trip the oh we're out of milk I got to run to the to the corner store you're, you're basically taking those hours out of people's week and so that that would be worth thirty dollars a month to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's seven dollars and fifty cents a week. It was it was pretty you know, and there was no delivery fees in what we were doing. So. Yeah, so it was very much about, you know, saving time and, and sort of giving people the sort of sense of control. And so when you came home on a Friday, you know, everything was there for you, waiting, your freezer product, refrigerated product, your dry cleaning was hanging there. I mean, everything was done for you. So um, it became a very, um, you know, a, a very time-saving uh, opportunity. When, when you start out 
with the test, I know that later you raise capital and, and you, you do warehouses, but when you start out with the test, are you just taking the orders and then going around and like literally shopping and collecting the materials to deliver? That's correct. Yeah. So we built, we built it back from the demand, right? We built it back from the home. So we, we just, what we came to find was is that the customer, you know, really wanted quality goods, right? But they didn't necessarily care where you sourced from as long as when, you know, you maintain the chill chains and all the products that you sold. And, you know, but as far as where you get the different products from, you know, we put a lot of energy into that basically to prove the model, right? So we had to prove the model that it worked because the key to the delivery business is one, there's one key metric, which is gross profit per stop, right? So how much gross profit do you have? and what you're delivering on a per-stop basis, and then how many stops can you make in an hour, right? So when you start to get those numbers, then what we found was we had something that was very projectable, right? Because we would sit there and say out of 52 opportunities, you know, 47 weeks we were getting orders from a house, right? So based on that, at 150 bucks, we're making over $7,000 in revenue on a per-household basis with about a 30% profit margin. So that's really what sort of got us going and running that test and the satisfaction for the consumer really is in the order. If they, if they, if they're not satisfied, they're going to just stop ordering, but they just kept ordering and ordering. So then we grew that from six households to a 50 household test. And then we grew it to thousands. And then we grew, we opened up facility in Boston and we opened up facility in Washington and Chicago. So we started growing that way. When you do, um, when you do move towards the, the, the warehouse model, you know, a central location and things like that, um, is that all, is that all about um, driving your costs down more? Was that about, uh, you know, stockpiling the things that tended to be ordered, you know, most often all, all day, every day, that sort of thing? Yeah, so you, you, you know, sort of the, the pick and pack process you know, needs to be very efficient. Um, so you're able to buy in bulk, so you're going to get higher margin for that. And you have to create a very efficient um, picking uh, facility so you can get the, you know, get your unit cost of, of picking down and create greater margin. So, yeah, it's, it's all about that. The... Um... You mentioned that at first, uh, you know, it would call it, people would call in or fax in their orders and things like that. But how quickly, because you launched in 93, so 93 is slightly before the web goes mainstream. But how quickly did web ordering or the web in general to, to, your, to your operation become central? Yeah, so we would look at it, and it would be, you know, probably when we got started, really, and it started going like 94, 95, 96. You know, around 96, you started to see maybe 10% Internet orders, you know, uh, 50% call-ins, 40% fax, and then it just kept on going. And just over time, the Internet side of it just, you know, would go. It, it, it just became the dominant. So when we took the company public, in June of 1999, um, we even changed the name to Streamline.com. Um, oh, I would say at that time, 80 to 90 percent of all orders were internet. You had um, you had raised money from from big names like Intel, SAP, and 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 GA, GE Capital as well. Did what was the um, the process of um, raising money for for Streamline? Because again, I'm stressing that this you're you're starting out these tests in '93, so. Although you are around for for the dot com era later on, when you start out, was was this an idea that was a, a difficult sell to uh, venture capital? 
So I, I think initially what we were really looking at was there was a lot of discussion about time-starved consumers um, and really that convenience, the whole convenience industry and anything associated with were important. So, I mean, I think we were really playing into that quite a bit. Um, then we had enough. We raised money from angel investors initially. And then when we had some data in our tests um, and, you know, we really started to see this happening, and people then started to talk a lot about direct to the consumer. Um, we went we went out and, and partnered actually to put a study together for the consumer packaged goods industry, um, who worked with Streamline to really look at doing oh sample programs, don't run out automatic replenishment programs. So we were working with Procter and Gamble, Coca Cola, all of these big companies who are using sort of our model to test direct to the consumer. So once we had that credibility and data going, um, then investors became more interested. And then as the internet started to come along. And it looked like we could really drive down the sort of the cost of ordering. Um, that's where we, we started to get greater and greater interest in the business. And you said that you started in Boston, but you also, um, I believe, expanded to uh, Atlanta and Washington, D.C. Is that right? So, no, we went Boston. We were in Washington, D.C., Chicago, New Jersey. Uh, those were our major okay. Those were our major markets. So I know I promised you at the beginning uh, I wasn't going to ask for any numbers, but just ballpark it if if you don't remember exactly. Like, um, what what was the uptake? Like, it, what were the the subscriber numbers that you you would reach maybe at your peak? Uh, well, I would say you know when I think about you know what the run rate was um, on an annual basis, I would probably say we had about. I don't know, maybe 7,000 customers. And we were doing about 50 million um, on an annualized basis. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. When we, we ended up selling the company to Peapod. Right. Uh, so when we got started, it was really us and Peapod doing it. And, um, you know, as you know, today, I mean, this, this category is a multi-billion dollar um, category. And everybody's looking at delivery and home mm -hmm. delivery and consumer goods as a, as a big opportunity. Um, I think we were there or very early, we were there um, following, I think, the consumer trend, but we really didn't have the benefit of the technology side because you really needed early adoption. Um, and as we all see today that the Internet is ubiquitous, it wasn't back then. You know, so um, in 1997 or 1998, you know, when we looked at a, at a market, you know, an available market to us, um, you probably had 20 to 30 percent of the households were really comfortable with, with the Internet and, and the technology at that stage. So it took a while for that all to happen. Right. Um, so th let's just uh, fill in for the listeners a little bit. Um, so the, the other competitors um, that come online um, – Famously, are, are Peapod and Webvan, and um, you know, Webvan kind of went in a different direction from you. They they start the warehouse first, and then they start running the tests and things like that. But um, so, essentially, do you feel like um, for for all these players in this space in the late nineties, um, the it was just too soon that that the the technology wasn't there, but also maybe uh, uh, people's habits weren't there yet. Yeah, I think that I think the technology. I, I I think that the consumer technology, the ordering technology, and the comfort with that um, 
wasn't really quite there yet. I think that that's a factor. And then I think also the back-end technology on the supply side to drive down costs, you know, for unit picking and those types of things. Because if you think about it, you're taking something. There's there's two things that the consumer does themselves um, in the equation when they go to the grocery store, right, that they, they don't necessarily think about. One is they do the delivery, um, Right, they do the delivery to their home, and two, they do the picking and packing. Well, maybe not the packing, maybe that's on the checkout. But so those are sort of two costs. So you've got to create a really efficient unit pick environment on the back end to really make this thing work. And a lot of that has to do with with technology. So, um, but it was probably more so just the consumer acceptance um, was just getting started at that time, and now it's it's totally there. I mean, people. You know, whether it's takeout food, groceries, what have you, people mm-hmm. are very comfortable with uh, with delivery models. You know, I wonder, too, um, you guys were, were targeting BSFs, uh, busy suburban families. But when you look at um, this this app economy, the, the people that are adopting things like Postmates and Instacart, they, they tend to be young urban professionals even more than families, it seems like. So it could be generational or it could be, um, you know, maybe just a different market to target. Yeah, I think that that's true. I, I think it gets back a little bit to the, you know, the economics of it. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I believe that all of the current delivery models are going to work because, you know, whenever you look at one, you just have to look at gross profit per stop, period. That's really the issue because, you know, if you can't, um, if you don't have enough margin when you go to make a delivery over a period of hours, which leverages the delivery person, um, it's not going to work for you. So the benefit we had was when we would drive into a suburban neighborhood, um, you know, and we had probably, I don't know, $40 of margin in every order, um, and we could do 10 to 12 stops in an hour, um, all, the economics all worked for us there. Um, so um, that that was a big part of the model that we sort of set up. Uh, I think that a lot of these things today, you know, it's it, it's really interesting the way that they work. You know, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of, of, you know, home delivery. You know, Drizzly's my favorite app, you know. So, you know, I think that all of that stuff um, is important to think about. But someone someone bears the cost on a delivery. When you, just on a personal level, when you do look at, at all of these unicorns, as they call them now, that are uh, popping up in, in this home delivery space, um are you uh, are you a little darn it? I was born too soon, or are you uh, encouraged that finally this model might might be proving out in the end? Yeah, well, I, I think I always believed in the model. I, I, I don't ever look back. So you know, I've I've done six or eight different ventures. So I think that you know the the model makes sense um, in in many cases. I think as a cons- I think the consumer today is so fortunate <laughs> that there are so many good opportunities for delivery. Um, I think some of them are subsidized by the venture capitalists who fund them. Um, I'm not so sure they're all, they'll all get to the other side um, once that happens, because sooner or later you got to show profitability in the model. So uh, I, I think there's some concerns there, but no, I, I, I don't look back on it at all. If you if you did uh, talk to someone that was you know a Postmates or an Instacart. Um, would you have any any lessons that you've learned that that you could impart to them um, for this model? You mentioned, you know, obviously the 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 revenue per stop and things like that. But any lessons that you learned with Streamline that you think might be 
might be helpful to to any of the new startups in the space today? Well, I think a lot of it is driven by the capital markets, right? So, you know, when when the capital is there to sort of prove out the model and provide some level of subsidy because you're not at profitability on a per unit basis yet, um, that's good. But I think that when that turns, and it does, um, you've got to make sure that the model you have you know, really has good unit center economics. I mean, you, whatever delivery area you're serving, I mean, you got to make sure the economics are, are fair. I think that the benefit they have a little bit is, is I do believe people are finally realizing that they're willing to pay a premium for delivery. So whether it, whatever way you put that in, whether that's a delivery charge or what have you, but local delivery seems to, people seem to be getting more comfortable with, with paying a delivery fee. Whereas a lot of times in e-commerce, if you buy something from a web, you know, from some web house website, you, you don't, you know, you don't want to pay any delivery charges, but I think people are getting more comfortable with local delivery and local delivery fees, which is, is economics that are needed. Well, you mentioned that um, you've been involved in half a dozen or more startups uh, over the course of your career, but I wondered um, if you wanted to tell us a little bit about Gratify, uh, where you're at today, because I I find this a really good idea, really fascinating, and I think uh, really useful. Yeah, I mean, Gratify is a company that I started, uh, she's been working on it behind the scenes for a couple of years now. We just announced in the last couple of weeks you know, our focus is really looking at a, a very big problem, which is there's $1.3 trillion in student loan debt in this country, um, and it impacts 40 million people. So I was amazed by it when I looked into it that the $1.3 trillion in student loan exceeds the credit card loan number, and it also exceeds auto loans in the United States. That, that to me, was just mind-boggling. So when I looked at it and said the average person is $35,000 in debt, that is an amazing amount of money to be in debt coming out of college. Um, so I really tried to figure out, is there a way I could create a model? Because those $40 million, that's the desired demographic. That's the demographic everybody's after. Every employer, every brand wants to reach that demographic. So we sort of created a model that captures value for that graduate and is able to take it on a monthly basis and put it right into their student loan account to help them pay down student loans. So we just announced our first employer program with PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, who has signed up um, and we are launching with. And now we've got about 100 other companies getting ready to sort of launch with us uh, next year. So, yeah, so Gratify is really trying to solve that problem. Um, uh, Tim DeMello, thank you so much for coming on the uh, Internet History Podcast and remembering all that for us. Well, thank you very much for having me. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.